Well, good morning, everybody. Morning. If you've been with us over the past couple weeks, we've been looking at Psalm chapter one and how the psalmist describes the blessed or blessed life, the blessed life. And if you were here two weeks ago, we began by looking at the way of blessedness in verses one and two, which introduced us to the blessed man who's described as one who no longer delights in wicked things as he used to, but now delights in the word of God. And that's because he's been radically changed by God. God has plucked him off the wicked path and has planted him on the blessed path and God has supernaturally altered his spiritual taste buds, making his word so sweet to him. And then last week we looked at the essence of blessedness, what it is exactly in verses three and four and we saw that the essence of blessedness is being spiritually fruitful, useful and full of life like a tree, because we are deeply rooted in God's word. But the essence of wickedness, what blessedness is not, is being spiritually fruitless, useless, and lifeless, like chaff in the wind, because we are not rooted in God's word. Now this morning we'll be looking at the final two verses of this psalm, verses five and six, which will tell us about the hope of blessedness, what blessedness destines the blessed man for, okay? And then conversely, we'll be talking about the hopelessness of wickedness and what wickedness destines the wicked man for, okay? So if you're ready to get into it, grab a Bible, turn in it to Psalm chapter one. Psalm chapter one. We'll just read the psalm in its entirety and then I'll pray for us and then we'll start digging into the final stanza a little deeper, okay? Here's Psalm chapter one. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked nor stands in the way of sinners nor sits in the seat of scoffers but his delight is in the law of the Lord, the word of God. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, this is a very bittersweet word here at the end of this song. Lord, it's the kind of word that in all honesty, part of me doesn't want to preach because some of it is hard to stomach. And I know that if it's a hard word for me to preach, then it's probably a hard word for this congregation to hear, Lord. 
So God, I just, I just ask that you would send your Holy Spirit now to help us to, to stomach the bitter so that we might savor the sweet. And I ask that you would be glorified this morning in our, willing, in our willingness to accept whatever your word has to say. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. So we've already looked at the way of blessedness in the first stanza, verses one and two. And the second stanza, the essence of blessedness, verses three and four. Now we're gonna look at stanza number three, the final stanza, the hope of blessedness, verses five and six. And let, let me read it just once more. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the very first thing we see here is the word therefore, which is a word that kind of funnels everything we just read in verses one through four down to this consequential point. Therefore, there are two destinies for man at the end of this life, perishing, or eternal life. There are two ways to walk in this life, down the path of wickedness or down the path of blessedness. There are two kinds of men in this life, wicked or righteous, blessed, chaff or tree, planted in the seat of scoffers or planted by streams of water. Therefore, there are two destinies for man at the end of this life, perishing or eternal life. Two ways. Two kinds, two destinies. Not three, not four, just two. And, and this, very, this very black and white language can be hard for us to wrap our minds around because we live in a world that is full of so many choices, so many options, so many paths. At least that's the way it seems, right? I mean, you go to Walmart and they have 17 different types of toothbrush. So how could it possibly be the case that in the final analysis, everything in life really boils down to just two ways, two kinds, two destinies? We'll come back to that question in just a minute, but let's, let's keep looking at the passage. So the psalmist says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment. One day we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, who is the judge of all the universe, John 5.22, Revelation 19.11. But the text says that the wicked will not be able to stand in the judgment, which probably means at least a couple things. Number one, it probably means that when God brings his charges against the wicked, they will have no legs to stand on. They will have no good defense. They will be tried and will be found guilty beyond a shadow of a doubt of sin and rebellion against the holy God and his good commands. And when all of their dark secrets are brought to life, brought to light, and their lifetime of sin is set before them as evidence and testimony against them, I think it will probably take their breath away as they see just how damning the evidence is 
and how futile it would be to allow even a single word in defense to slip out of their mouth. And number two, it probably means that the wicked will be swept away in God's judgment. Swept away like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. You know, in scripture, some of the people who walked the tallest were the ones who eventually fell the hardest. Proverbs 16, 18 says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And in the judgment, all those who walked so tall, so sure of themselves in this life, and who confidently built their house upon the sand and not upon the rock who is Christ, they will all fall hard. Like Goliath who was taken down in one fell swoop. And then the psalmist tells us about someone else who will not stand in the judgment. He adds, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So do you see what the psalmist is saying? He's saying that there's one kind of person who is obviously wicked. We might call them wolves. But there's another kind of person who isn't so obviously wicked. We might call them goats. And the goats do a lot better at blending in with the Lord's sheep, the righteous. They kind of look like the sheep, they hang out with the sheep, they're in fellowship with the sheep, they sing the same songs as the sheep, they sit under the same preaching and teaching as the sheep, but they're not sheep. They're not sheep because they've never actually repented of their sin, turned away from their sin, and have cast themselves upon the mercy of Jesus for salvation. And Jesus tells us what he will say to these unrepentant fakers on the last day, Romans, or Matthew 7, 23. I never knew you. I never knew you. Apart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says also in Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 34, and then verse 41, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you catch that? The destiny of the wolves and the goats is the same destiny as Satan and his demons. According to Jesus, they all belong in the same category. God considers them all to be wicked. Plain and simple, case closed. And then the psalmist 
changes course briefly to say something encouraging for the righteous. He says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And what's interesting is that this Hebrew word, know, yada, is the same word used in Genesis chapter four, verse one, where it says that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. And it's the same word used in Nahum chapter one, verse seven, where it says that the Lord knows those who take refuge in him. And in both cases, what's being communicated is not a kind of intellectual knowledge, like that Adam knew of Eve, or that the Lord knows of his people, but what's being communicated is a kind of special relational knowledge, like how a husband knows his bride deeply and intimately in a way that no one else ever could. And so, there's something emotional and even covenantal being communicated here in this word, yada. And so what I think the psalmist is really getting at is that the Lord essentially loves the way of the righteous. In other words, the Lord doesn't just know where the righteous path goes and where his people are along that path, but he loves that path. He loves it, and he loves it because it's his handiwork. He's broken into the sinful maze of this world where all the paths humanity creates eventually end up in the exact same terrible place. He's broken in and he's blazed a new trail upward out of the maze entirely. That's the way of blessedness. It's a totally unique way that exists on the y-axis, not the x-axis, if you know what I mean. And if God loves this path, how much more, how much more does he love the people he created this path for? That's what I take away from this passage, and it's super encouraging to me. If, if, if God loves the very path he's made for me, how much more does he love me? And then the psalmist returns his focus to the wicked once more, saying that his way, the wicked way, the way that God does not love, will perish. Have you ever been in a conversation with a spiritual but not religious person? Like a Sedona, Arizona kind of person, if you know what I mean? Fanny pack, kombucha, healing crystals. Yeah, have you ever been in a conversation with one of these people and they've said something like, all religions are true and they all lead to God in their own way. You've heard the saying, all roads lead to Rome. Have you ever heard someone say that? All roads lead to Rome. It's, I guess it's a nice way on their part to try to validate everybody's faith and it sounds nice and it probably makes people feel good but there's a serious problem with it because one road claims that God is everything and another road claims that God is within oneself and another road claims that God is unknowable and another road claims that God doesn't even exist and another road claims that God is over here and can only be gotten to by this way and another road claims that God is over here and can only be gotten to by this way, the point being 
that these differing views of God cannot all logically, they cannot logically all be true. And every religion cannot logically be true because they all contradict each other. And the psalmist knows this. And he makes this point crystal clear. Not all roads lead to Rome. In fact, all roads but one lead to hell. Perishing, everlasting death and destruction. Now I want to return to that question we asked earlier, which I said we'd get back to, which is, how can it possibly be the case that in the final analysis, everything in life really boils down to just two ways, two kinds, two destinies? Well, here's how. Let me illustrate it with a little story. Uh, A few years ago, I heard a story about a missionary who was sitting down in a cafe with a Muslim man somewhere in Africa, talking with him about the Ten Commandments. And uh, he asked the Muslim man, have you kept the Ten Commandments? And the Muslim man said, of course. (laughs) And so the missionary begins to go through the commands. Okay, so you shall not lie. Are you saying you've never lied before? Don't lie to me. (laughs) What about the command, you shall not steal? Haven't you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Or how about the command, you shall not commit adultery? And before you answer, remember what Jesus said, that if you even look upon a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. And so the missionary goes through all these commandments, and it turns out that the Muslim man has not kept the Ten Commandments, but has indeed broken every one of them. And so the missionary asks him, so since you've broken all of God's commandments, when you stand before him on the last day in judgment, will he be sending you to heaven? or sentencing you to hell. And the Muslim man said, well, hopefully in the end, my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. And then the missionary does something dramatic to help this Muslim man understand the flaw in his reasoning. He reaches down to the ground and he picks up a little piece of goat poop and then he plops it into his coffee and then holds it out to the Muslim man and says, here, drink. To illustrate how even just a little bit of sin corrupts everything. Even a little bit of sin corrupts everything. In other words, just like how we would never look at a piece of, or a a cup of coffee with a little piece of poop in it and say, well, it's mostly good, bottoms up. In the same way, the holy God of the universe who created us to be holy, he will never look upon us in all the sin we've committed against him and say, well, he's mostly good and then sweep all those sins under the rug like they don't even matter. Only a corrupt and unjust judge would ever do such a thing. My point, my point is that there are no shades of wickedness. There's just wickedness. There's no such thing as a person who's 
just a little wicked but mostly good, just like there's no such thing as a cup of coffee that's a little poopy but mostly good. And thus, in God's eyes, there are just two ways, two kinds, two destinies, one for the law keeper, the righteous, and another for the law breaker, the wicked. And this should make us a little nervous because who in their right mind can look in the mirror and say about that person staring back at them, now that's a righteous man if I ever saw one. Who could say that when Psalm chapter 14 verse three, Psalm 53 verse one, and Romans chapter three verse 10 all say that no one is righteous in and of himself, not even one, not even one. The truth is that each and every one of us in this room deserve to be cast out of the congregation of the righteous forever because we in and of ourselves are not righteous. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all have broken God's good commands. We all deserve the just judge's sentence of death and perishing. But here's the good news. Here's the gospel news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the capital B, capital M, blessed man, the true vine, the righteous one, when asked by the self-confident Pharisees why he ate and drank with sinners, said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hear that? Jesus came to earth for sinners for the unrighteous, for you and for me. And then he went to the cross where he bore our filthy rags of sin and carried out our death sentences, absorbing his body the fullness of the flood of God's wrath against the sins of his people in order to forgive us and to cleanse us and then clothe us with his royal robe of righteousness through repentance and faith. In other words, the first step, the very first step in becoming a sin-pardoned, not guilty, righteous man is not in trying to do better and be more righteous, but rather in recognizing something that many of the Pharisees never did, that we desperately need a savior. We desperately need a savior because we in and of ourselves are not righteous. But Jesus is, and Jesus lived and died and rose as our substitute and sacrifice to forgive us and to credit his righteousness to us through faith. Isn't that amazing? And so be encouraged to know that God's wrath will pass over you on the last day like the angel of death who passed over the homes in Egypt whose doorposts were covered with the blood of an unblemished lamb, God's wrath will pass over you on the last day if you are covered in the blood of the lamb of God, the blessed man. And you will stand in the judgment if you've built your house upon the rock and are grafted into the true vine 
and you will be declared not guilty and righteous if you have exchanged your filthy rags of sin for the royal robe of the King of Kings, the righteous one. Amen? So the applications here are obvious and simple. For the wicked man, the wolf or the goat in the congregation of the righteous, for the wicked man, don't trust in your own righteousness, but cast yourself upon the mercy of God and the righteousness of Christ, lest you be swept away in the flood of God's judgment and perish. Don't trust in your own righteousness, but cast yourself upon the mercy of God and the righteousness of Christ, lest you be swept away in the flood of God's judgment and perish. Listen, wicked man. If you stand before God on the day of judgment and start listing off all the good things you've done in your life, he is going to be deeply offended. Deeply offended. I mean, just, just imagine if, if a murderer was standing before a judge on trial, trying to convince the judge to let him off the hook, saying, listen, judge, I've, uh, I've always paid my taxes, and, uh, well, I've, I've been trying to recycle more, and, uh, oh, there was this one time, there was this one time where I donated $10 to someone's GoFundMe page. And so as you see, judge, I'm mostly a good guy. I mean, sure, I've made some mistakes. We all make mistakes, but, but those mistakes don't define who I am as a person. And you know, I've been trying, I've been trying to be better. Yeah, I'm working on that. And blah, 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 blah. And a just judge would say, yeah, but what about the fact that you're a murderer? Should I just let you go because you've done some nice things in your life? And if you, wicked man, stand before God one day and try to do the same thing, it's not gonna work. In fact, it's just gonna work against you. And you might say, well, fair enough, but isn't murder a little bit of an extreme example? I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm also not a murderer. To which I'd respond, haven't you ever wished someone dead? Haven't you ever hated someone so much that you wished they'd just get run over by a car? Hasn't anyone ever become dead to you in your heart? If your answer is yes, then you are a murderer. You're a murderer at heart. You don't have to have blood on your hands to be a murderer, but only in your heart. But here's the good news. Jesus died for murderers like you and me. And God in his grace has kindly brought you here this morning to hear this message of how you can be forgiven of your sin and be declared righteous in his sight. It's through acknowledging your sin to God, telling him that you know how grievous it must be to him and how full of death it is because he is holy and full of life. And then by repenting of that sin, turning away from that sin and turning to Jesus through faith, beholding his his beauty and his glory as his blood has covered your sin so that your blood, your life, 
wouldn't have to pay for it. Wicked man, don't, don't trust in your own righteousness. Please don't trust in your own righteousness, but cast yourself upon the mercy of God and the righteousness of Jesus, lest you be swept away in the flood of God's judgment and perish. And then the application for the righteous, blessed man, the Lord's sheep, is this. Don't be tempted to ever trust in anything or anyone other than Jesus because no other righteous man was swept away in the flood of God's judgment in your place to give you eternal life. Don't be tempted to ever trust in anything or anyone other than Jesus because no other righteous man was swept away in the flood of God's judgment in your place to give you eternal life. Let me tell you a quick little story. About a year and a half ago, right after Ezra was born, I had a conversation one night with a guy who had been standing on a street corner here in town holding up a sign that said, Jesus loves you. Perhaps you know exactly who I'm talking about. And this guy was very friendly and very talkative, very smiley. And about two minutes into our conversation, I asked him if he went to church anywhere in the area, and he said, no. And I thought that was kind of odd. So then he asked me if I went to any church in the area, and I said, yeah, I go to Cedar Home Baptist Church. And he said, oh, I know about that church. And I've got to warn you that they teach some false doctrines. And I said, really? Like what? (laughs) And he said, they teach that people are saved through faith in Jesus alone and not by works. And then he went on to explain to me how Christians only get saved partially by Jesus, but then have to continue to save themselves through daily proving to God through their good works that they are righteous enough to stay in his grace. Which, number one, totally misunderstands the very concept of grace. And number two, is basically the same thing that every Christian cult teaches Jesus plus works equals salvation, whereas the Bible says that works are the fruit, they're the result of salvation, and grace is the catalyst. Grace is the driving force. I just felt so bad for this guy who was so deceived and was living his life so focused on himself without ever gazing upon the beauty of the completed work of Jesus who died as a substitute and sacrifice in our place and who said with his final breath, it is finished. And I just said to this guy, if my salvation was ever dependent upon my ability to keep it, I would lose it just as fast as I got it because God is so holy and I know that I am so not in and of myself. But I believe that Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect sinless life in my place and then went to the cross where he made an actual atonement for my sin, all of it, past, present, and future, and that I am justified 
through faith in him, in him alone. And he gave me a disappointed look and then we parted ways and that was it. And I just share this story to illustrate how I think there's a human tendency in all of us to look at our life and our walk with God and how we think we're doing spiritually and then to make a determination about the state of our salvation based on that, which leads to one of two things, either to being puffed up and prideful thinking, well, I must be saved because I'm a pretty good person, or to being beat down, defeated, thinking, how could I possibly be saved when I still struggle with this and that and all these things? And Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. Jesus solves the problem. The Apostle Paul writes in Galatians chapter two, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I love that, he says the exact same thing three times in one sentence. And then he continues in verse 21. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And this is really the crux of the issue. Did Jesus make an actual atonement for sin or not? And the cults say, no, he didn't. But the entire book of Galatians and Romans both say over and over and over, yes, he did. And we are justified through faith in him, in him alone, and not by our works. Go home this afternoon, read Galatians, read Romans, and you'll see what I'm talking about. It says it over and over and over. It's hard to miss. And so to quote the lyrics of an old hymn by James Proctor titled, It Is Finished, This is so good. Cast your deadly doing down. He's talking about our efforts to justify ourselves by our works. Cast your deadly doing down. Down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone. Gloriously complete. Blessed man, don't be tempted to ever trust in anything or anyone other than Jesus because no other righteous man was swept away in the flood of God's judgment in your place to give you eternal life. So these final two verses of Psalm chapter one remind us that the flood of God's judgment is fast approaching. And this day ought to make the wicked man fear greatly because his wickedness destines him for something that is truly awful. But it's a day that the blessed man, all who are in Christ, all who, have, who are standing in Christ, it's a day that the blessed man ought to look forward to and ought to hope in. In fact, the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther, who was really the guy on the front lines 500 years ago fighting the battle against the Roman Catholic Church on this very issue of justification by faith alone and not by works, Martin Luther referred to this day 
as the most happy last day because he knew that blessedness destines the believer for something that is truly amazing. And not because of us, but only because of Jesus. So I'll just end with a question. Have you built your house upon the sand or upon the rock who is Christ? Who will you be hiding in when the storm comes? Do you know Jesus? And does Jesus know you? Let me pray for us. Lord God, I pray that everyone here in this room knows you and is known by you. Not known in the intellectual sense, but in the special, relational, emotional, covenantal sense, Lord. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room is truly known by you and is one of your sheep and not just a deceived goat who's never actually repented of their sin and trusted in you for salvation. Lord, if that's the case, please, please bring them under conviction of sin this morning and then give them a glimpse of your majesty and your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, the righteous one who died in their place. And may more worshipers leave this room this morning than came in, Lord. Lord, for the rest of us, we ask that you would keep our hearts, keep our hearts from ever pridefully and self-righteously standing in ourselves and not in our Savior. Oh Lord, what a recipe for disaster. Lord, please protect us from that by causing yourself to increase and ourselves to decrease in our understanding so that we would never forget who the Savior is. Oh Lord, we love you. You are so good to us, your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name for your glory alone. Amen. Amen. Well, go in the grace of God.